Well, good morning, everyone. Hey, before we jump into the message this morning, I want to pop this up here. If you get a chance and, or didn't get a chance earlier, you can scan this QR code. It's going to take you to a site where you can fill out an information card. But you can also get message notes and see announcements and even a place for you to give on that. Um, one thing I just want to point out or remind you of from the announcement video is that next weekend, Easter weekend, we are adding a service on Saturday evening. So uh, as of right now, we really are having a hard time adding more chairs in here to keep things separated uh, a little bit. So if you could help out with some of the crowd that, that's expected on Easter, we're going to do a Saturday night service at 6 p.m. Maybe invite someone who goes to another church even and tell them, hey, we can, I'll, I'll go to your Easter service on Sunday if you'll come to mine on Saturday night. Just don't end up going to their church after that, okay? They can come here, but anyway. Well, uh, if you've been with us the past couple of weeks, we've been in this series called Who Is This Man? where we're trying to take a deeper look at who Jesus is. And so in the first week of the series, we looked at one aspect of Jesus, of how he was a friend of sinners. And then last week, we were in Luke chapter 8, and we, we looked at how he, Jesus healed this, this nameless woman from this bleeding that she had had for 12 years. Then he raised this 12-year-old girl from the dead, and we saw Jesus as a compassionate healer. Well, this Sunday and next Sunday, Easter Sunday, uh, they'll be my last two sermons I preach at Gateway. And in these sermons, we're going to be looking at two of the most important and defining aspects of who Jesus is. We're going to look at his, his death, his crucifixion, and we're going to look at his resurrection. And so today, to answer that question, who is this man? This Jesus is our suffering Savior. He is our suffering Savior. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5, the Apostle Paul, he wrote this. He said, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. And so to be honest, it gives me such joy that, that my last two sermons I preach here are going to reflect on what is of first importance. They're going to reflect on this Jesus who died for our sins and was raised from the dead. Understanding how the suffering of Christ fits into the gospel is, is one of the most critical pieces to grasp as a believer. Again, there's, there's really nothing more important that we could be talking about than what we're going to talk about today and what we're going to talk about next week. So as we look at Jesus from this perspective of a suffering Savior, I want us to, to see some things. First, I want us to see that Jesus' suffering and death was divinely planned. It was divinely planned. Hey, in a moment, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 27, a long section of Scripture. If you want to turn there now, go ahead. I'm going to point out a couple other Scriptures before we get there. But Jesus' suffering and death was divinely planned. In Isaiah 53.10, it says, Yet it was the Lord's will, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. It was designed by God at the beginning of creation. Revelation 13.8 talks about Jesus saying, The Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Meaning this was planned. When Adam and Eve sinned, they caused a separation between themselves and our holy God. And it's something that all of us have had to live with. So God put into motion this plan for redemption. And that plan was to send his one and only son into the world to reconcile himself back to, reconcile the world back to himself. 
He told, after the fall of man, he told Satan that, that another Adam, the second Adam, Jesus, referring to Jesus, would come and would crush Satan's head one day. But that Satan would strike Jesus. And the prophet Isaiah, he wrote some 700 years before Jesus was born. Yet he so accurately predicted that the coming Messiah would have to suffer and die. Listen to this familiar passage from Isaiah 53. It says, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like, like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Again, 700 years before Jesus came, it was predicted that he would suffer a substitutionary death. In Psalm 22, this was written hundreds of years before the Romans used crucifixion as a method of capital punishment. Listen to some of the phrases the psalmist used. And many believe that Jesus was quoting from this psalm when he hung on the cross. Verse 1, he said, the psalmist said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sound familiar? Verse 7, he said, All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. Verse 16, Again, written hundreds of years before crucifixion was even invented, he puts this, Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. Why would he say that? Unless this was Holy Spirit anointed, breathed, right? They, they pierced my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. This was planned. Remember the gifts that the Magi brought, brought Jesus after he was born? Gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold was a gift for a king. Frankincense was an element of worship. This baby was born to be worshipped. But myrrh? Myrrh was something that was used for the preparation of a dead body for burial. Even the gifts at his birth were a mysterious symbol that this child had come into this world for a purpose to suffer, to suffer and to die. Jewish historian Josephus tells us that when Jesus was just a teenager, there was this revolt against the Romans near his hometown of Nazareth. And we believe this could have been the, the one that was led by Judas the Galilean in Acts 5.37. But Joseph said that the, the Roman army had crushed this rebellion that had taken place. And to discourage anyone else from rebelling, what they did is they crucified an Israelite every three feet along a road for a distance of over 70 miles. That would mean that over 1,700 people were crucified along this road. And Jesus, as a teenager, would have certainly seen this. Can you imagine the deep impression that this would have made on him? We don't know exactly what he knew at that time. Did he know that? Did he know that that was his destiny to die on a cross? But he would witness crucifixions. When we consider Jesus as our suffering Savior, remember, this was intentional. This was planned by God. 
Second thing I want us to understand is that Jesus' suffering and death was extremely painful. And so I want to read to you a lengthy description uh, from Matthew 27, starting in verse 22, about the crucifixion. It says this, What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah, Pilate asked. They all answered, Crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, His blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put on his clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. They off, there they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, Save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders, they mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said... I am the Son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Back when I was in college, I heard this amazing teaching about what Jesus had gone through on the cross by a man named Mark Moore. And to be honest, when I heard it, it was, it was life-changing to me to hear it. To hear about really what, 
what Jesus suffered, to really hear about the torture that Jesus went through. And so over the years, I've, I've shared that message with others. I've probably shared it, I don't know, about every three years here at Gateway. Some of you, you've heard it before, but I want to share some of it again today. Um, and I'm sorry if you've heard it before, but to be honest, yeah, to think about what Jesus went through, to really understand it, if we did, we would never ever casually sing, Jesus paid it all. We could never casually say, yeah, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. If we really understood what he went through, it would change our perspective, I believe. And so we want to talk about the sacrifice of our suffering Savior. So let me describe some of that suffering for you. If you remember, Jesus was arrested and he was taken before the Jewish high priest. He was falsely accused of blasphemy. Now, the Jews could have had Jesus put to death by stoning him. Did you know that? According to their law, if someone blasphemed God, they could be stoned to death. And their high priest had already convicted Jesus of blasphemy. But they weren't going to be satisfied with stoning Jesus. They wanted Jesus to be crucified. That's why they took the matter to Pontius Pilate. Why did they want him to be crucified? Well, see, to the Jews, when someone was crucified, they believed that it was a mark that that person was cursed by God. And so if they could get Jesus to be crucified, they thought that they could make Jesus' followers believe that Jesus really wasn't a man of God, that he's not the, man, the, the Messiah. I mean, obviously, a Messiah could not be cursed by God, and if he's crucified, then he's cursed by God, right? And so what they did is they manipulated the system. They had Jesus brought before Pilate, and they influenced Pilate, and they even sold themselves out by citing the name and power of Caesar to get Jesus crucified. And though they did get Jesus crucified, their plan, it didn't really accomplish what they wanted. It's because a, a crucifixion actually fulfilled prophecies about the, the, the kind of death that the Messiah would face and what kind of, and what kind of death Jesus predicted he would face. And their plan also didn't accomplish what they wanted because of a little thing called the resurrection. But we'll talk about that one next week. But the Jewish leaders, they, they got the Romans involved and were able to finagle the system to where Pilate was left in a really tough situation. So Jesus went before Pilate, and Pilate tried to work, work his way out of getting involved. He didn't want to be involved. He didn't really want to put Jesus to death. Pilate was a Roman ruler, and so he tried to let Jesus go. He tried with Barabbas. He tried to send him to Herod. He tried to proclaim him innocent, but everything he tried failed. And so with a lot of pressure coming on Pilate, he tried one more attempt to let him go. He tried what was called an appeal to pity. Basically, he would have Jesus beaten so badly that the crowd of Jews would have to have pity on Jesus and let him live. And so he subjected Jesus to a precursor to the cross called flogging. Now the Gospels don't go into a whole lot of details about this flogging. And it's because everyone in Jesus' day knew what a flogging entailed. But we don't witness uh, crucifixions anymore. We don't witness floggings today. So let me help you understand what was involved in this flogging process. You know, for most people, when they think of, of flogging, they think about getting whipped by a whip or maybe a light stick that cracks against someone's back. But that is not what the Romans meant when they talked about flogging. The Romans used a weapon of torture called a cat of nine tails. 
This weapon was a stick about a foot to a foot and a half in length, and attached to the stick were nine leather strands. They would embed sharp objects on these leather strands, things like glass, metal, sharp pieces of rock. Their favorite two things to embed to these leather strands were lead balls and sheep bones. Sheep bones were popular because they cut the best. And so the Romans, they would take their victims and they would dangle them from rings or they would wrap them around a pole or they would make them bend over a short pillar and fasten them down. It didn't quite matter the position as long as the back was nice and tight. It was nice and stretched out. And then the scourging would begin. One soldier on one side of the victim and the other soldier on the victim's other side and they would take turns flogging. Now, when someone uses a whip, when we see, it, they, we see them like crack the whip against something or someone, but the cat of nine tails was designed to work a little bit differently. Instead of just cracking, they would slap and pull. Slap and pull. And at first, the lead balls and the sheep bones would just crack against the skin and leave small welts and abrasions. But as they continued to do this, the tissue underneath the skin would fill with liquid and become soft and eventually burst open. And so the sharp objects then that were embedded in the cat of nine tails would catch onto the skin. And when they pulled it, it would rake ribbons of flesh off of a victim's back. One soldier going down one side this way, the other checkerboarding the other way. They'd start at the victim's shoulders and work their way down the victim's back, down the buttocks, down the back of the legs, down the calves. And they would do this so much so that the vertebrae were exposed to the open air. Six out of ten men died from flogging alone. Some because of loss of blood, others because when they stood back up, there wasn't enough flesh to hold in their intestines. The soldiers wouldn't just get the backs of the victims, though. The nine tails would often wrap around and catch the front of them, the front of their legs, their abdomen, their chest. Many victims were blinded because the lead balls would come around and they would gouge out the eyeballs. And this they did to Jesus over and over and over again. The Roman soldiers then fashioned a crown for Jesus to wear. He was, of course, the king of the Jews, right? This crown was made of thorns, though, and they shoved it on his head, tearing through his skin. They threw a purple robe around Jesus and mockingly bowed down to him, saying, All hail the king of the Jews! And then they slapped him in his face. They struck him with their fists. They had given him a staff, and they took that staff and struck him in the face over and over with it. They spit on him. They pulled out the hair of his beard. John's Gospel then tells us that Pontius Pilate brought Jesus in front of the crowds of people after this flogging. And they placed him before, Pontius Pilate placed him before the crowds and said, Behold the man, hoping, hoping that when the people saw this pitiful sight that had, that had been beaten so badly, that they would have some kind of mercy on him. 
This bloodied man, according to Isaiah 53, who had been beaten beyond recognition, his eyes swollen shut, his lips cracked and bleeding, his flesh shredded from the flogging. And you would think, you would think that some kind of mercy would come up over this crowd. And yet they yelled, crucify him! Crucify him! For what? Because he put little children on his knees and welcomed them? Because he healed some blind man who had been born that way or raised an old lady's son from the dead? Maybe because he said such controversial things as love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. For what? For what did Jesus die? if not for your sins and for mine. At that point, Pilate washed his hands as if to say that he was not guilty of this man's death, but he could not wash away the guilt. Pilate sold out the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords for a petty political career that would be over in just three years. And he handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers then took the patibulum, which is the horizontal crossbeam, and they laid it on Jesus' open-fleshed back. It weighed about 125 pounds. No wonder Jesus could not carry it as he was instructed to walk to his place of execution. And so Simon of Cyrene was assigned to carry this blood-dripping, splintered crossbeam. It was carried all the way up to Golgotha, and there they attached the patibulum to the, of the cross to the stipe, which is the beam that runs vertical. And they laid Jesus out and they attached his hands to the cross. Now, when we say hands, we're talking about right here, right? From the wrist up. But to the Romans, just like in soccer, your hand is anything from the tip of your fingers all the way down to your elbow. So where they likely put the nail is behind the complex of wrist bones, right between the two bones of your forearm, your radius and your ulna. If you feel it, you can feel that there's an indentation there. If you put a nail there, you can hang an entire human body from just that one nail. But the other advantage for the Romans was that of inflicting as much pain as possible. And that was the goal of the Romans. They wanted to not just kill a person, but they wanted to inflict as much pain as they could. They wanted to deter people from breaking their law. So going back to the spot, if you press down on the spot on your hand, you'll feel a pain if you press down hard enough. They'll shoot down to your elbow. If you press really hard, you can get that pain to shoot all the way up to your shoulder. This is what we call the median nerve. And if you sever that nerve, two things are going to happen. You'll have agonizing, searing pain shoot through the middle of your back. And then the other thing is that your hand will cramp up in the form of a bird claw. And so there Jesus was lying on the ground with his hands now nailed to a cross. And as he suffered the pains of the nails going through his hands, that pain in his upper body would soon be matched in his lower body as they nailed his feet to the cross. Now, traditionally, when you see a picture of Jesus on the cross, you see him with his legs crossed and one nail is going through both feet, through the top of his feet. That doesn't seem to be the way it would have been done, though. It'd be very difficult to take two oblong objects like feet and nail them together with one spike. 
1968, some archaeologists were digging around in Palestine and they discovered an ossuary, a box of bones. When they opened the box, they, they had, there was an inscription uh, of a name on the box. The name was Yohanin or John. And when they saw this box inside, this box of bones, there was a four and a half inch spike that was through the, the right heel of this man. Now the Romans, they, they crucified their victims in a number of different ways. Sometimes they would crucify them on an X-shaped cross, sometimes on just one vertical beam, sometimes on a cross that looked like a capital T. Jesus was, of course, uh, crucified on a cross that was shaped like a lowercase t. We know this because he had his placard, his accusation uh, on, above his head. He was the king of the Jews. So we know what kind of cross Jesus uh, had. But the Romans, they crucified people in a variety of different ways. Oftentimes, they were just experimenting, toying with people as the Nazis used to do. So Jesus could have been crucified in a different way other than Johannin was. But, but if he was crucified in the same way, then there's no way that you could get a four and a half inch nail through both feet and into a beam of wood to keep a guy who is convulsing on a cross stuck to the cross. Furthermore, it wasn't through the top of Johannine's feet. It was through the sides, which leads us to two options. Uh, two options as to how Johannine was crucified and, and perhaps how Jesus was crucified. The first option would be to nail the feet to each side of the cross, like they're straddled around the beam. And the advantage here would be that it would cause the victim to be thrown forward. And that would cause more pain on the pierced points. The other option would be to turn the body so that the feet are sideways and then nail each foot independently into the front of the cross. And the advantage here would be that it would, be, it would put them in an uncomfortable position and would cause cramping in the shoulders and convulsions from the cramping. Either way, it would have caused immense pain and agony for the victim of a cross. So after Jesus' feet were nailed to the cross, then they raised it up and they dropped the cross into a hole, jarring the victim on those nail-pierced hands and feet and raking that splintering cross against Jesus' open back. Many times when we see a picture of Jesus on a cross, we see him hanging high above the crowds. But usually, a cross was placed low. Why? So people could look a criminal in their eyes. So they could spit on them and mock them and hit the victim of crucifixion. And they couldn't retaliate. So the question is though, how does a victim of crucifixion die? Well, the cause of death by crucifixion varied somewhat with each case. But the two most prominent causes were probably what we call hypovolemic shock where the heart is unable to pump enough body to the, to the uh, blood to the body, I'm sorry, causing organs to shut down. And the other main cause of death was exhaustion asphyxia, where you basically suffocate to death. Now, there were other factors, things like dehydration, stress-induced arrhythmias, and congestive heart failure. If soldiers wanted to speed up the death process, they would break a victim's legs below the kneecaps, and then that would lead to death within minutes. But death by crucifixion was in every sense of the word excruciating. In fact, the, that, that word excruciating comes from the Latin word out of the cross. 
The average stay, can you imagine this? The average stay on a cross was 72 hours. One victim lasted as long as nine days. Most victims of crucifixion stayed up there so long that they actually attracted scavengers. Wild dogs would come by and they would, they would lick the blood of the victims and they would begin to literally eat the criminals off of the cross. Scavenger birds would come by and they were particularly attracted to the moisture of the eyeballs. If you ever saw the movie The Passion of the Christ, there's a scene where one of the thieves had his eyes pecked out by a bird. Now Jesus didn't undergo this extremely long stay on a cross though. He was only on the cross for six hours. Most medical experts believe that Jesus did not die on the cross from suffocation. And one of the ways we know this is because the last thing that Jesus said was on the cross was, it is finished. The Greek word is tetelestai. And the text indicates that he shouted this. He shouted, it is finished. And you cannot shout if you're suffocating to death. So how is it that Jesus died then? Well, we actually think we know. You remember that soldier who came up to the cross after Jesus had died? And he took a spear and he drove it up underneath Jesus' ribcage and into his heart to make sure that, that Jesus was dead. And, and he was. But when he pulled the spear out, what also came out? Blood and water flowed out. A cardiologist reading these biblical texts, John's account of this blood and water flowing, could tell you what had happened. Jesus' heart had literally ruptured, exploded. Not from the, the spear that the soldier pierced it with. This was just medical confirmation of what had happened to Jesus. So his heart had ruptured, and after the heart ruptured, the blood then that was pumping was forced into what's called the pericardial sac around the heart. This sac has liquid in it to protect the heart. And, and the, the liquid in the sac and the blood, they commingled together when Jesus died. So when the soldier punctured that sac of fluid underneath his ribcage, we saw a stream of water and blood come out. And it was confirmation that Jesus quite literally died of a broken heart. Jesus suffered physically and emotionally. Can you imagine the rejection that he faced from his friends, the crowds that were singing Hosanna to him on this Sunday, Palm Sunday, were then screaming, crucify him just a few days later. Can you imagine the emotional pain he suffered as well? But he also suffered spiritually. You can hear it when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now we don't, we don't have all of the theological answers for this moment, but I believe that it was at this point that God was putting the weight of the sin of the world on Jesus' shoulders. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Isaiah 53.6 it says that the Lord laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. That means that the sins of Adam and Eve, and Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, the sins of Moses, the sins of David and Solomon, the sins of Paul and Peter and John, your parents' sins, your grandparents' sins, your children's 
sins, your sins, my sins, my pride, my lust, my greed, my lies, my selfishness, my evil thoughts, my hateful words. Everybody's sins were laid on Jesus, the one who had never sinned. Can you imagine the burden that Jesus carried at that point? What pain, what agony our Lord and Savior suffered. Jesus' suffering and death was painful, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. But we also know that Jesus' suffering and death had an eternal purpose. Because of our sin, we are separated from God and there is a gulf that is too wide for us to cross and we cannot do a thing about it. But by the plan and purpose of God as seen in the suffering and death of Jesus, we are rescued. And if you're a believer, when you come to the end of your life because of Jesus' suffering, because of his death, we can take refuge in his promises. And we can sing these words that we're going to sing in just a moment. We can sing with confidence. And when before the throne, I stand in him complete. Jesus died my soul to save. My lips shall still repeat. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, when we think about what Jesus went through, when we think about the suffering and agony, agony he experienced because of my sin, there's not much more that we can say than thank you. So God, when we say Jesus died on the cross for our sins, when we sing Jesus paid it all. God, I pray that it would have meaning to us. And so once again, we say thank you. All to you we owe. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So this morning, if you have a decision to make in response to what Jesus has done for you, I'm going to be up here to your right as we sing. Or maybe you just need some prayer. I'd love to to meet with you. Will you stand and sing with us about this death that Jesus suffered for us and what it means to us?